I'm Dr. Eric Larson. I'm the host of the Paradox Podcast. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Honor and Ron Paul Podcast starts now. Welcome to Honor and Ron Paul Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I am here today with uh, Dr. Eric Larson, and he is uh, has a, a wonderful podcast. It has almost 100 episodes now, correct? Or over I'm at, I just published 73. So yeah. Oh, congratulations. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast, just an overview, um, and then we'll kind of get into the origins. Sure. Well, the podcast is called The Paradox. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. So it's a little play in words, uh, which irritates my kids uh, with my typical dad humor. Um, uh, the show is it, basically it's me interviewing another physician generally, uh, not always, but most of the time. And we talk about basically the U.S. medical system, things that people have heard about, things that people haven't heard about. And it's a, a way for both people who are within the profession, who are physicians and people who are the laypersons to have a better understanding of what's going on, why you're not getting the care you want to give and why you're unable to deliver the care that you want to, you want to deliver as a physician. And uh, we cover everything from medication shortages to insurance issues, third-party payers, alternative delivery systems, surgical centers, and some ethical issues. I mean, I just had my last episode was on physician-assisted suicide. We've talked about organ harvesting, uh, physician suicide, physician wellness, finances. And so it really is a good, I think, variety show, and it it lifts the curtain back from sort of what's going on in medicine, and it really does help a lot of my colleagues understand more of what why their frustrations are the way they are and, you know, what, what the problems are. Of course, it comes from a libertarian slant. I'm not overtly libertarian. I mean, occasionally I drop the word here and there, um, but definitely looking for solutions. And when I approach guests, we talk about oftentimes free market solutions to whatever the problems are that we face. And uh, you were nice enough to have me on um, right. a year ago. I was yeah. uh, a pain management physician and we spoke about the opioid epidemic um, and uh, yeah, it was an excellent experience. And I, um, this podcast is also about a, a physician, uh, a right, bit older yes. than us, uh, Dr. Ron Paul. Um, not a whole lot of physicians do go into politics, uh, but he had kind of an interesting story. When did you first become acquainted with Dr. Paul? Well, I suppose it's probably 2007 when most people who are listening to your show were exposed to him, uh, the ones who are older. <laughs> I'm sure some of it more the 2012 variety of presidential run. I was not really aware of him earlier as a libertarian because he ran, I believe it was in 88 um, for the, on the LP ticket. And that was, you know, back when I was in middle school, I suppose. And so I didn't really, or freshman high school. So at that point, I wasn't really paying much attention, especially to you know, third party politics, relatively traditional sort of schooling or a home, home life, I should say. Uh, I was involved in the Libertarian Party really throughout college for the most part. And then medical school, as you know, you don't have a lot of time to do a lot of that stuff. And so I didn't do really much when I was in med school or even a residency. So uh, what what years? Uh, so were you a Libertarian before 2007 then? Oh, yeah. I, I, was, oh, okay. I, I would probably have described myself as a Libertarian in, oh, if you want to pick a year, probably 93, 94. Oh, so at that time. Yeah, that time back in Michigan, uh, so it was University of Michigan, which is a very, I guess you just say it, call it a liberal school for yeah. lack of a better term. Um, 
And, uh, you know, probably you say by far the most liberal school in the Midwest. Oh, uh, Grinnell College Pro- in Iowa. Yeah, probably. Yeah, well, Grinnell, yeah, that's teeny tiny. But yeah, yeah. yeah I think you're probably it's safe to say. I mean, Madison, you know, UW Madison oh, yep, would be yep, pretty yep. is pretty well known. Now it's kind of hard to tell because most schools are pretty um, radical in that sense. But we were the first schools like with a speech code and things. But I got um, involved when I heard a speech uh, from someone from the Objectivist Society. So I, I got I sort of dabbled in objectivism in college, and then objectivism uh, worked, is the uh, uh, study of Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand, yeah. Yeah, right. And and then it just became a little too rigid for me the uh, philosophy, and uh, and I, the whole time I was working with uh, the Michigan Review, which was an alternative I shouldn't say alternative paper, but it was a it was a weekly or semi weekly paper that we put out. It was sort of uh, loosely based on uh, the National Review in that it was a sort of counterpoint to the standard sort of news service on campuses. Uh, but it wasn't very conservative. We were actually very libertarian at that time. I mean, sometimes it just depends on the kids who were running the, the paper at that time. And the time I joined, there were a lot of fairly libertarian kids. So I was libertarian, but no one really, if you talk to the average student, I mean, no one knew even what that was. Uh, sure. you're, you're liberal or you, what? It, maybe they thought you'd smoke pot or something, which a lot of people did at Michigan. <laughs> but uh, that was pretty much the extent of it. And so it was, it was very much a um, living with the, the, um, the tumbleweed as a libertarian. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's just no one around. And that all changed in 2007. I mean, I was still, like I said, I was involved in the Libertarian Party in Michigan. I uh, became chair. I ran for statewide office a couple of times as a libertarian. I was the top vote getter uh, one year in, I think it was 2008. Um, as a when I ran for regent for Michigan, but that doesn't say a whole lot because I still lost by I know hundreds of thousands of votes, if um, if not a million in the state of Michigan. But um, I I uh, happened to just one day be watching television, and I almost never watched C-SPAN. I think it's fair, fair to say I could probably say I never watched C-SPAN, and for whatever reason that day I just turned it on, and I don't, and again I don't remember the, why I did, but. Ron Paul is giving one of his classic speeches to an empty, you know, House chamber. That the special, uh, special time that that congressmen are allowed at the end of the day when no one's there paying attention. And he was talking about, I don't know, gold standard, as usual. I mean, just Ron Paul stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, oh. And I remember hearing his name that he was one of the many candidates running for the Republican uh, nomination. And I, I listened to him. I thought, wow, this guy, this is pretty good. I think he's pretty libertarian. So. I think I'll, you know, I'll kind of follow him. And it's really hard for those who don't remember back to 2007, but your ability to access news and information was so much harder than it is now. I mean, it's only been a dozen years, but, you know, yeah. the <clears throat> YouTube videos and those sorts of things were relatively, I mean, kind of newish. And uh, and so it wasn't hard at that time to really follow everything that he did. <laughs> yeah, this, <laughs> <You> can, is, <clears throat> this is when YouTube was basically, you know, that guy swinging his uh, – Broomstick around and falling down, little cats making right. funny things. But it wasn't like a source of of uh, news, really. It wasn't uh, people didn't have commentary. There wasn't like you know things would get millions and millions of views. That was like you know the, the keyboard cat. Um, right. Yes. Yeah. It was. There was. It was uh, uh, there was no like uh, real. I don't. I don't think Reddit was a thing. Uh, or maybe it was. Uh, I, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I. Yeah, I, these, I don't know. Uh, I mean. It, it was very. It was a. It was an unusual time. I mean, it wasn't that long. At that time, I had cable internet, but I most. I mean, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people had dial-up internet still at that time. Mm-hmm. Again, that's not that long ago. 
and so you know I'd watch all these things and then I you see all these people doing these crazy things all over the country like you know dropping banners on overpasses for you know free overpasses saying the revolution you know Ron Paul revolution and uh, we gave him some money and he seemed to be getting a decent amount of money because they, they published that uh, publicly, which is the, one of the smartest things their campaign did, probably the only smart thing their campaign did. Yeah. Uh, and um, big you know, money bomb really, really made the news. <clears throat> oh, absolutely. Right. And and what, so the interesting story I have with with Ron Paul is my my wife and I go to church here in Grand Rapids uh, to a Lutheran uh, church. And at the time we had two pa- we had his pastor and assistant pastor and our our pastor was uh, Pastor Paul Karpinski, uh, and but his last name is Karpinski, and so people just called him Pastor Paul. And then we had another pastor who was retired, who had a congregation on the east side of the state, and he's sort of basically retired uh, in the West Michigan here. And he was just Pastor David. We were going to go to the Republican um, conference in on Mackinac Island, which is in northern Michigan. They have it biennially on non-election years. They have oftentimes a lot of candidates and, you know, the whole Republican Party in Michigan shows up there. But a lot of presidential candidates come sort of to test the waters. It's early in the election years, like I think late summer, I believe, or maybe early fall. And Ron Paul was going to be there along with, you know, everybody, Giuliani and Fred Thompson. I'm try- I can't remember all the candidates. There were a ton of them there at that time. Um, and so we decided to go up and support him. And he was having a fundraiser. And so we max supported the fundraiser to, and so we're going to you know, go up and as we're loading up our car to head up on Friday to drive up to Mackinac um, Island, our friend calls us and she said, Hey, did you know that your assistant pastor, pastor David is Ron Paul's brother? We said, what? what? That's impossible. No way. Right. And we thought, well, I guess his name now think about it. His name's David Paul, but you know, it's not like a super rare name. I mean, he's maybe the right age. He seems older. Uh, but you know, I don't even know if there was Wikipedia at the time. I don't, we just didn't look, you know, we didn't look these things up. And as we're driving up, I, my wife and I are talking, we're like, you know, maybe he is. It's, I mean, the age is right or something, but they don't sound alike, you know, and usually people which grew up together sound somewhat similar. You know, Ron Paul definitely sounds like he grew up in Texas or has a little bit of a twang right. and our pastor did not at all. He sounded like he's from Michigan. I mean, nothing really interesting. So anyway, as we get up there, we go – eventually, Ron Paul's given a speaking time, which is a breakfast. It's not a very good time. And uh, then at the fundraiser's right afterwards. And so we go to breakfast, and within five minutes, we look at each other like, he is absolutely his brother. Because the mannerisms, the way they like hold the lecture, the way they talk – the, sim- the similar things with siblings you know, that they sure. you just recognize, right? Like you know, whether it's gait or how you, you know, talk. And although he had a different accent – there's no question, right? <laughs> so we were pretty convinced, and then they were like, "Okay, for sure." So we raced down after the talk to the hotel that it's um, that the fundraiser is at, and it turns out that in 2007, if you're a Max donor to a Ron Paul event, you're pretty much the only Max donor to a Ron Paul, <laughs> Paul campaign <laughs> event. And and if you're the minimum donors, you know people who give $10 or whatever, there are you know a million of those people. But uh, so we're in the room and we're waiting, and he, Ron Paul gets there, and it's just us. For I think we had him for like 20 minutes. Just, oh wow! Right. And so, what do you think? My wife and I talked to him about <laughs> economics, you know, Federal Reserve, foreign policy. No, we talk about obstetrics. <laughs> so, because he's not, 
he's OBGYN. So we start talking about C-sections and I'm talking about, you know, what we're doing and as far as deliveries and stuff in our hospital. And so we have, it's a very nice chat and we talk a little, you know, we're giving him, you know, kudos. And we said, oh, by the way, your brother is our pastor. And he's, he could make it. He was going to come up, but he couldn't because he and his wife were on, had planned a trip to Italy. So they were gone. And he said, oh, I wondered where David was. That explains it, right? And uh, so anyway, so we go back to church, and I think the next week or the week after, I go up to Pastor Paul, and I said, hey, we saw your brother this past weekend at, at Mackinac. And you know, he said, it's too bad that you weren't there. And he said, oh, yeah, he mentioned that there's a really nice blonde lady from his church, from my church who was there. I said, well, you know, no I was there too. <laughs> I was there too. He's like, yeah, he didn't say anything about you. He just said there's just one blonde lady, which I thought was hilarious. And my wife, of course, said nothing the entire time. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so anyway, we formed a bond just uh, because he had dial-up out in sort of rural area of, in Michigan outside of Grand Rapids. And when stuff's going on, you know, it's not on the news. And so he would come to me and he's like, what's going on in the campaign? I'd say, oh, there are these people doing this thing out in you know, Las Vegas or New Hampshire or wherever. I'll, and I tell him about these fundraisers and these like sort of the mini money bombs. And then that big one happened in November was I think the 5th of November, right? Where, mm-hmm. where he raised, I don't know, millions of dollars, a couple million dollars. And uh, which broke every which broke every record for online fundraising in one day i mean now it's obviously been broken but at that time and you know there's really no coverage or that of that feat <laughs> which isn't surprising because that's how they treated him right. uh, but so i we just we formed a good friendship we had he and his wife over at our watch party for the primary which is in uh i think it's like mid or late january in 2008 in michigan and you know, Ron, i don't remember what he came in he didn't do well uh, not surprising but i was you know we had our fairly large meetup group at the time and i just designated myself as the media coordinator so i contacted media and we did a bunch of stuff there were tons of people i mean we had probably over 100 people who were doing stuff within the city which is a lot grassroots but of course there's no campaign to like coordinate with there was there's really no campaign right. infrastructure right? there's nothing you know and so you're kind of just doing everything on your own we got handbills and that's like the most that was like the best that we could get. Uh, and so we would hand those out and drop them off in houses and stuff. And so I'd walk neighborhoods and drop them. It was fun. And, um, and then I also looked up uh, all the donors, the FEC on the FEC list to Ron Paul. I thought, well, you know, I should get a hold of these people and see if they want to help out or do something else. And one of the people on there was Justin Amash. Oh, and then really? I re- recognized, Oh, the guy lives like three miles from me. So I went to his house and he wasn't home. No one was home. And, I really couldn't find a way to contact him. So yeah, I think I left a message, but never heard from him. And um, then I realized in February that I saw that our state house district, which of course we were in the same district because we live right next to each other, uh, that our rep was term limited out in Michigan. You're only allowed to serve six years. And his wife, who I think was soon to be ex-wife or maybe already was ex-wife, with the same last name was running for his seat. So it's kind of one of those... Oh. Yeah. guaranteed you know spots whatever but i saw that justin amash's name was on the on the as running that for that seat i thought oh well i should this guy gave money to ron paul i should contact him and uh so anyway i i contacted him we met and he was amazing i'm like this guy is you know he all he's absolutely committed to the liberty liberty movement and to find the biggest vehicle he can to try and promote it good economics all that stuff i'm definitely you know I'm going to support him as much as I can. I remember coming home to my wife and saying, well, 
I'll be involved in the Republican Party just as long as he is, which thinking to myself, that's about three months, right? <laughs> because anyone, anyone I support who's uh, who is I like a lot is someone who generally loses badly, <laughs> like, you know, Ron Paul and you know, any other libertarian you support. Of well, course, made it 12 years, right? Yeah. And then he Jerry ran for Congress. And, yeah. And so we we then became very good friends. And and then uh, that following summer of 2009, I suppose, my uh, the Pastor David came up to me and he said, hey, we have a family re- reunion every year. And this year it's here in Michigan. So all the brothers or five brothers would have the, the reunion would sort of rotate, you know, every couple of years to their house. And uh, he said, do you want to come? I said, I said, well, yeah. <laughs> he said, I don't think Rand's going to come because Rand's running for Senate in Kentucky. And he's probably busy. But, um, yeah, you're more than welcome to come. And my brothers will be there, including Ron, because he knew, obviously, he's a big fan of Ron, Ron's. And so my family went. And, I mean, I said it was a – there could have been more than, like, 12 people there, 15 or so, a couple grandkids and stuff. And just hanging out, listening to – just he's sitting at the kitchen table eating – hot dogs and corn on the cob with Ron Paul um, and listening to him try and explain Obamacare and how it was a problem uh, and how it sort of a threat because <laughs> he had one, one brother who was, uh, I think he's a Presbyterian pastor in Pennsylvania and very liberal. And so he was trying to convince him that Obamacare is a bad idea. And, uh, but anyway, it was, it was, I mean, obviously once in a lifetime sort of experience. And uh, he, that's when he told me, you know, at some point you need to run for office and then later that year, I guess it was that year or the next year, um, Justin was we were just out to dinner or something. He said, you know, I think I'm going to run for Congress. And my wife – and he's only still in his first term. And my wife like, I don't – boy, this seems kind of crazy. You know, why don't you try and build your profile up more? Ver, Vern Ayler is the current sitting congressman. He's been in office for, I don't know, it's like 16 years or something and had never actually run a primary because – no one's going to run against a guy who's got, I don't know how much money he had, but a lot. And he had the backing of all the establishment. And it's very, it was very deep red establishment, sort of strong district here. You know, it's Jerry Ford's district. Mm. And um, he said, yeah, I just think it's, it's the right time. <clears throat> so, you know, there's, once he's convinced he can win, there's really no convincing him otherwise. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. And so then what he asked me to do, he said, can you get Ron Paul? And so I said, I'll try. And, uh, and then using some channels, we finally, uh, I finally was able to set up a meeting with him and Ron Paul. So I flew down with him to meet Ron Paul and get his endorsement and stuff. So that was kind of cool sort of experience. So I met Ron Paul, uh, you know, another time in his office at Lake Jackson. And then since then, I think I met him one more time. And when he's still in the Capitol, when Justin was serving in, in DC, I was visiting Justin and kind of ran into Ron Paul in the hallways, <laughs> you know, just, he's walking oh, from wow. the, house floor or something so we chatted for a few minutes he recognized me and and then actually there's another time we went to a birthday party with him for his uh wife that i got invited to as well here in uh michigan so i've had a number of interactions with him so it's been it's been really yeah i've been really blessed to have had those opportunities to to not only be you know influenced who i am but actually to meet him and to get to know know him and and i would say it still fairly superficial he's really just a delightful person i mean really just a, a great great man and uh you know a guy you'd want as your like uncle or something i mean he's really just a good person yeah that's really what's uh shocking is that uh, you know politics hasn't changed him uh i don't know where that that kind of center comes from um but it's uh, 
something to emulate, that's for sure. Uh, so you're basically responsible for Justin Amash winning his seat. Because yeah, <laughs> w- no, without without that, no, 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 without that Ron Paul endorsement, I mean that uh, that threw a lot of a lot of weight behind him. I think I even donated to his campaign just because he was like, oh, hey, a Ron Paul guy is is another another one is running him, Mike Lee, and uh, uh, Rand, of course. Rand, of course. Yeah. yeah. Thomas Massey. Thomas uh, Massey. That's what I was missing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that kind I, of. I would, I would caution people in this sort of like a little bit of teeny political advice. I think endorsements are not worth a whole lot. Uh, I think they're worth something. Uh, but if you think like you can get the endorsement for Ron Paul or someone and then they, you'll be victorious, uh, it, it will give you a, a tiny bump. It might help your fundraising a little bit. But I think overall, it's the other stuff you have to do as a candidate that's going to make you successful i i mean had ron endorsed just or not i don't think it would have made a difference outside the fact that it probably made it easier for just to make contacts in dc he had natural sort of allies already in place when he arrived in dc mm-hmm. it sort of exposed him to the network so that that was definitely very helpful but you know i mean it's great to have ron paul back you but he backed lots of people and as politicians endorse people all the time who end up losing. Cause yeah, if you look at your true. flyer, everyone's got endorsements both sides. So they don't both win. <laughs> so excellent points. And so uh, anyway, I, I, there were definitely people at the time who thought Ron was very influential and he was, but he wasn't enough to get you like over the finish line. If you were, if you hadn't done much work or you, or you right. weren't well known or you didn't have the sort of the other essentials of being successful in a campaign. Right. So what what was it? Oh, so, uh, so let's go back. Um, I met Ron Paul when I was a resident, and um, so I scraped together some money for a dinner down in Southern California. Um, and I emailed the guy. I was like, you know, I can't do a max donation. How about a thousand bucks? And uh, they're like, okay, fine. Um, but it was it was very different there was quite a few more people in southern california that could pony up 2400 bucks <laughs> oh yeah uh, i'm sure <laughs> and uh it was delightful um my brother got an excellent picture shaking his hand and then it was dinner time and then i was like well i'm sure that he'll shake hands afterwards no man he did a speech and he was out of there he's an early bird I shake his hand like as he's getting in the car and it's a horrible picture. And I was like, Brian, that's my brother. Like, oh, man. He's like, oh, don't bother him now. We'll get a picture later. I'm like, he still has he still has that picture up on his wall just yeah. like, uh, of him and Ron Paul. And I don't even know where mine went because you could barely see him. <laughs> so well, um, still around. Yeah. Um, tell me a bit about. What it was like, because I was, you know, a neocon Republican, kind of a Midwest Republican uh, before. And so Ron Paul opened my eyes to libertarianism. What was it like already being a libertarian um, uh, and then having this Ron Paul movement where you're, you're basically alone? You, you mm-hmm. don't even know how to describe your political philosophy to people. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh. There's thousands of people who went from zero to a thousand so quickly. I can only tell you that when I watched the video, of course, again, most people are watching videos. 
that I was watching a video of Ron Paul giving a speech on the University of Michigan campus outside. And as he's giving the talk, the crowd, which is sizable crowd, and I'm assuming mostly students because you know not many other people there. I, I don't know, thousands of people start chanting "End the Fed." Uh, I almost was brought to tears, and I because the momentous of that, I mean, that moment was really a validation, you know, sort of of how you've right. lived and thought about things, and it's something that you thought certainly you thought you never would never happen, especially people chanting "End the Fed." I mean, that's like a such a third level sort of, uh, you know, higher order kind of political thinking versus, right. you know, like war is bad, war is good. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was like, it was just a validation of just that I'm not, you're, yes, right. You're not alone, uh, that you're not totally crazy. Uh, I think, you know, all libertarians are somewhere on the spectrum, <laughs> but uh, I, I think. I represent it, that view. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. No. Uh, but, you know, it, just to, not having to explain what it means is a huge benefit. And, and I think you, I hear people like, for instance, I've listened to Dave Smith who laments how the Liberty moment slipped, falling apart and all this stuff. And I'm like, you have no idea. You came into this movement when it was already like, you know, at its somewhat something of a peak, you don't have it five years earlier. There was, it didn't exist really. I mean, it was, there's reason magazine, there's Cato, there's, there's certainly some outlets for it, but for the most part, it just really, it wasn't anything. And it's, it just exploded and it continues to grow. I know people are very down about it, but I think it's getting bigger. And, and I've been overly enthusiastic at times to tell my dad, like, oh, you know, this is, now it's really going to catch on, right? Because look at what Ron Paul's done. He's running in 2012 and he's leading in Iowa. I mean, this is, this is some big stuff. But I think, you know, the, the problem, of course, was, that the Republican Party is the wrong vehicle for it, ultimately. Mm. Uh, but it was probably the right party to launch it. Uh, sure. Because you had to have a, a big enough platform. But it's probably not the one to carry it over the finish line, at least in its current state. But um, but it, just the fact that I can tell anybody now, when I first started in the OR and I tell people I was libertarian, they're kind of like, eh, what? You're who? You know, and now everybody knows what that is. They have their um, They have their opinions of it. And it's largely due, largely due, I think, to Ron Paul, uh, despite all the toiling in the Libertarian Party and all the other stuff. I think, you know, having the high-profile presidential campaign, even though it was very unsuccessful in many ways, uh, was what what has put everything on the map. And, and I think it's it has put us in a position where we just need that next exposure to to grow even further. And I, I think it's just a matter of time before that happens. Yeah. Well, hopefully that next exposure is not going to be a, you know, a crack up boom or stagflation again or something. You know, no, the, uh, I mean, yeah. Hopefully it'll be something in in the terms of you know politics or the po- popular zeitgeist, and we don't have to go through yet another uh, Fed-induced bubble. Well, I mean, you know, you could argue that's going to happen at some point anyway. As long as you have the Fed, it's going to exist. Um, yeah, I it's, think. Kind of a foregone conclusion, but you know, I, I think always hope. <laughs> there's always hope, and and certainly, uh, I you know, my hope is that we have an opportunity to have someone who can present that message on a large enough platform and uh, to start up the the movement again and to coalesce all those people who sort of sort of separated out because once 
once Ron Paul's campaigns were done, there was really no place to go. I mean, I toiled for years in the Republican Party until I just gave up about two years ago. Hmm. I was a precinct delegate. I ran for office, actually. I ran for Justin's seat and almost won, <clears throat> which we refer to as the near miss in my family. Uh, and so I just, you know, continue to practice medicine. But uh, there, there just, there just isn't room within the the party itself to to grow that movement. I, I just don't see it's the the interests are too strong and they have too strong control certainly over the party apparatus. And I suspect to do the same in the Democratic Party to yeah. take it over, you know. And the Libertarian Party is fairly impotent at this point. Uh, it's it's has the ballot access, which is very valuable. But it's as a party structure, it's it you know doesn't have a lot of influence at this point at this time. So I mean, very true. Kind of where we are. Yeah, the Democratic Party seems um, fairly hopeless, just given the treatment that they've given to uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who's you know very much you know, doing this whole democratic socialist type mantra is almost indistinguishable from the other candidates in most policies, except she's anti-war in a very real and legitimate way. Uh, and they've just uh, done nothing but trash her. Um, so that's disappointing. Yeah, but not surprising. I mean, I yeah. think you, when you look at the moneyed interest within the parties, it, the same thing was happening around Paul. And this, if you're if you're going to fundamentally challenge the the foundation of of uh, the government and sort of the, the power, you're not going to get any breaks. They're going to do everything right. they can to stop you. And so uh, unless you had tremendous popular uprising, which frankly, it just doesn't exist within the democratic base at this point. And, uh, and so if, I mean, if, if the democratic base had the same, res- same response to Tulsi that they did to Ron, she could do something, but uh, I don't think she's very, ins- I don't think she's a very inspiring person in, on most levels. Like you said, she's pretty conventional about every view, except when it comes to war. Right. And even that it's, it's even her, her war stance is somewhat nuanced. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Ron's wasn't, Ron's was very much, you know, he was against Bring sanctions, against everything. Right. Bring the troops home and all the military occupations. We shouldn't have these alliances. We shouldn't have sanctions against people. And, and Tulsi is not, she's not as uh, clear cut as that. She's she's like, well, you know, some of these alliances make sense, so we should keep, you know, allied partners. And so then it becomes I think I think it just becomes less inspiring. And so then unless there's something else about you that can really get people to, to rally around you, you're not offering a whole lot if that's not your main issue. And right now, clearly, anti-Trump is the issue. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not uh, I think that's her problem. And you know, politics are much very much a matter of sort of timing and sort of where the you know where things are and either sometimes it hurts you and sometimes it helps you i think it helped ron for sure it, it, the fact that the rock war is there unpopular no one was there talking against it i think that was what propelled him to get people to listen especially on the left yeah yeah there were several uh people that came over from the left um uh, during that time that have continued to be uh influential you mentioned david smith uh the um yeah Comedian, uh, Libertas uh, is his uh, special, and then he's got the Part of the Problem podcast. Um, and uh, Robin Corner, the uh, British gentleman who uh, had um, Blue Republican, was his um, uh, vehicle. during. He, he said that um, if you want to be a good leftist, you should vote. You change your uh, um, allegiance to Republicans so you could vote for Ron Paul. And then he continues to, to pop up with um, some articles, and he has become 
uh, libertarian as he kind of realized that, well, you know, freedom must also include freedom to how you spend your money. And um, uh, that's kind of completing that entire package. You can't just have social freedom. You need financial freedom as well. Right. Otherwise, you're still under uh, someone's control. Uh, so it's all been interesting how there there does continue to be this web. And I'm, I'm trying to kind of document all of this outgrowth that has come from the the um, uh, from the, the Ron Paul moments um, and um, how hopefully there will be some type of a catalyst. And, you know, the Internet with its decentralization has really been a dramatic influence. And, um, and I think uh, there's a lot of entrenched interest in the United States, but there's been some really impressive stories in other countries that are much smaller and more mobile um, where there has been, you know, fairly libertarianish type of, uh, of changes. And I think a lot of that is, um, from Ron Paul's influence, um, I'm thinking Romania made some dramatic changes, mm-hmm. um, and Estonia, you know, they uh, said that oh, we're gonna make our taxes so low people will actually pay them, and their <laughs> economy's just been been uh, a booming since. I think they went from like top marginal rate of 80% down to 10. I mean, uh, and uh, you know, those Eastern Bloc countries. You know, they've been suppressed for so long with the information they've been allowed. Now they have free access and this whole world is kind of opened up. In Brazil, there's that uh, big mo- movement uh, of um, Manos, Mars, Manos, Marx, Mas, Mises. Um, you know, less Marx, more Mises or Ludwig von Mises. Um, and hopefully that will help change uh, some of the pretty over over controlling Brazilian government policies. Uh, so there, there certainly is hope, particularly when you look at kind of the, the global changes, you know, poverty rate decreasing by 50% just in the past 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, the economic freedoms uh, in Africa, Southeast Asia are increasing. And with that, uh, dramatic increases in uh, people's standard of living. So there's there certainly is a lot to be hopeful for. Uh, it, it will be interesting how how things go in the United States over the next half a dozen years. Um, uh, yeah, well, I, and I would and I would add that even looking at the United States, it's easy to be very pessimistic, especially if you're in medicine. You know, uh, you look at the push for Medicare for all with, and then even even the resistance for the most part, the sort of the standard resistance line is, is really kind of keep the current system, which is pretty terrible as you and I would probably agree. And um, yet, despite that, there are people who find innovative ways to, to get around these systems. Uh, When you're looking at economic liberty in the United States, I look at organizations like Institute for justice, which I uh, donate to at IJ uh, and they fight for economic liberty. They're fighting successfully oftentimes for uh, in licensing laws and, Opening up, opening up uh, economic opportunity for lots of people, uh, getting rid of excessive fines, and they're successful. And these are the sorts of organizations that didn't exist 20 years ago. And I think there's a there's a there's a large contingent of people who are fighting for 
rights and we are much freer in some ways than we were even in, than we may feel like we were in the 90s. The tax, marginal tax rate might change or whatever. But um, I, I think there are reasons to be optimistic. And I think there are more people who support those sort of policies. But, you know, like anything, there's a tension. And they're just like there are the people who are looking for Mises. They're the people looking for Marx. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and there's there are people always looking for control and uh, and and having power over others and that's always the tension and you know if you're could to, because to, it's sort of the dichotomy that you have to be a, to be a successful libertarian you have to seize power and then relinquish it <laughs> why right. not giving it to someone else right it's it's yeah, really pull difficult. George Washington right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there aren't a lot of George Washingtons. I think that's yeah. really what it comes down to, right? I mean, there are some. There are some people who are principled who actually will do what they say they're going to do. But I think you watch someone like – and I don't mean to pick on Rand Paul because I think he's done a great job in some ways. But it is really difficult to be successful, uh, to be electorally successful, and to be influential and to not compromise too much your principle. Because I think, you know, looking now, you'd say he's compromised a lot and probably – He's given up too much, uh, but you know, how do you strike that balance? And are you willing to, are you willing to, to be subject to to the ire of your of the the party? You know, if you're going to try with within party politics to be successful, can you can you be okay with people who are around you who are work, actively working to destroy you all the time? There aren't many people who are okay like that. Right. You know, there aren't many people who go into a work environment like I'm okay with everyone trying to to backstab me, and. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even the best of circumstances, when you go play along, they're not backstabbing just because there's the threat that they could backstab you <laughs> if you, if you right. suddenly don't. There, there aren't a lot of people who do that. I mean, that's why I'm always so impressed with Justin and, and uh, with with his really just disregard for what the, the party does, did to him. I mean, now he's not in the party, but they would all, always work against him. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's the wrong thing. And he saw people who tried to play both ways. And they always, always were were once you're compromised, you're you can't go back. And that's why it was impressive what Ron Paul did. Um, and I think what Justin do, doing, there aren't many who are like that. I think you know Thomas Massey is another example, someone who, for the most part, really doesn't. Um, he doesn't. He's not pressured to do things that he doesn't want to do. But I mean, what a great example is at the same time that Justin won, I think it was 2010. Uh, there's a guy named Kerry uh, Bentivoglio. So Thaddeus Makata was Republican in Michigan, and in Michigan, I don't know if this is a national thing, law, but anyway, you have to require a number of signatures to get on ballot to be placed successfully for you know primary and whatever. And Kerry was um, a retired school teacher and a reindeer um, farmer, and which I deem another like reindeer in Southeast Michigan. But anyway, uh, he was running a primary against Makata, got on the ballot. And McCotter found it turns out that he uh, he basically f- they forged a lot of the signatures, so he was disqualified from the ballot, and suddenly Kerry Bentivoglio was the only one on the ballot, and he was very much a liberty sort of Republican, you know, which is those are only people crazy enough to try and run against, you know, established sitting Repu- congressman. It's a very Republican district in 2010 was an extremely Republican year, and so Kerry won. Every, and everyone knew, and he knew that he was absolutely going to be number one target by the established part of the party to come take a seat back and take it back from him. And so he had to make a decision: did he try and legislate as a liberty Republican, or did he try and ingratiate himself with the party? And so he tried to hang out with John Boehner, and so he would usually vote the right way, but not always. And so he 
was not a reliable vote for the establishment. He wasn't really a reliable vote for Liberty Republicans. And so he was useless to nobody. And so he was, you know, discarded. And so and he didn't he didn't establish a base of support uh, of donors, maybe nationally or wherever that you have to get to to support your campaign. So it's really tough. I mean, what Ron Paul did for so many years, what Justin Mosh has done, what Tom Massey has done, it's really hard. And so I, you know, I, I think we need those, we need people to sort of follow that, that model if they can, but it's, it takes a lot of, uh, I think you have to have a very strong personality and core principles to pull that off. And most politicians don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really uh, tough system. Um, but there is a lot of hope, and I've really appreciated speaking with you. Um, it's a, a wonderful Ron Paul story. Uh, hopefully someday I'll uh, be able to get that handshake with him in a nice, solid picture. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, thank you much. Uh, it, Paradox, is it uh, www.paradox.com or Paradox? Well, Podcast? it's actually The Paradox, so it's T-H-E-P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S.com. Yep, and you can find any podcast player. Like I said, we're 73 episodes in. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great show. And I think and if you want hope about medicine, I mean, we, I, I definitely address lots of problems in medicine, but oftentimes we're talking about solutions, innovative ways of, of people getting around the problems. And, and I think I... Uh, I would feel like if you listen to the show long enough, you would see a way out of our problem, uh, you know, within healthcare. It, of course, doesn't re- it doesn't require big solutions from D.C. or from your state capital, which makes it less popular <laughs> from a lot of people. But, you know, it's I think I think there are market solutions to lots of the problems we have, and I think I think that's the way you fix things. I think you know the more you, I mean, obviously, it's, talk preach the choir here, but um, I think we not only can say that in theory, but I think we had practical results showing that our methods work and they're better. And uh, anyway, we just need to spread those ideas and support them when we can. Absolutely. And do you have a, a Patreon that's associated with the paradox or is yep. they just support it's you a, by listening? It's uh, yeah, I have Patreon supporters uh, at just at patreon.com slash the paradox. I'm on Twitter at the paradox show or at Eric L. Larson. Sort of, I have one sort of personal page and I'm a little more, medically i guess on the paradox show one uh so you can follow either of those and there's also a facebook page which i don't know people really use facebook pages anymore because you have to advertise them now but evidently not based on the uh <laughs> facebook slash honoring ron paul uh, <laughs> yeah. uh so well best of luck to you in your show i appreciate it being on and uh, oh, thank you it was a pleasure and thanks for being a guest too however long ago that was now oh yes anytime all right, take care. Uh, Dr. Eric Larson, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, all mine. Thank you for listening to Honoring Ron Paul. This was episode five. Please visit www.honoringronpaul.com. <laughs>